0: section eleven of charles james fox by henry offley wakeman this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter six the india bill part one the summer of seventeen eighty three was spent by fox with the assistance of burke in preparing the bill for the better government of the indian possessions of great britain upon which the coalition ministry had chosen to stand or fall Fox was fully aware of the difficulty of the task which he had undertaken, and indeed it is not untrue to say that he had undertaken it because of its difficulty. In a letter to Lord Northington, the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, written in November 1783, he says, Our Indian measure will come on soon after the meeting. It will be a vigorous and hazardous one, and if we get that well over, i have very little apprehension about anything else here and a few days later he says again our indian business upon which all depends comes on tuesday the great contest about it on the second reading will in my opinion be the most important question to us that is ever likely to come on he did not therefore conceal from himself the risk which he was running political cowardice was never among his faults though perhaps his friends might sometimes almost wish that it was. In an attack upon an old, established, and wealthy corporation like the East India Company, he was certain to alienate many powerful interests, to enable the different sections of his enemies to find a common ground of opposition, and to give the king an opportunity for the exercise of personal influence if he was disposed to make use of it fox was well aware of all this but he was not the man to hesitate to put his fate to the touch and win or lose it all his whole heart was stirred by the reports which had been laid before parliament of the rapacity of english officials and the wrong done to unoffending natives the pure love of humanity always among the noblest of his qualities burned with as intense a of flame for the riot of bengal or of Owed, as for the negro of africa or for the serf of france he could not endure the thought that the rule of england should seem to the educated hindu a return to barbarism and brutality the victory of might over right but it was not only philanthropy which urged fox to stake the fortunes of the ministry upon the indian question statesmanship undertook what humanity prompted. A great success was necessary to quiet the cavillings of opponents, to obliterate the remembrance of the past, and to give to England that steady and firm government which was the best, and to many minds the only justification of the coalition. The ministry were secure of their majority in the House of Commons, They were by no means sure of a majority in the constituencies if the weight of the court influence was to be thrown into the opposite scale the indian question had been before parliament again and again the proceedings of warren hastings his dissensions with the council at calcutta the repudiation of his policy by the directors at home its support by the proprietors had been for years the common talk of political society and a fruitful topic of parliamentary criticism. In 1781, an inquiry into the Government of India had been authorized by Parliament, and the report of the Committee had been strongly condemnatory of the Governor-General. Before the recess of 1783, just after the Coalition Ministry had assumed the responsibilities of office, Dundas had actually brought into the House of Commons a bill for the appointment of Lord Cornwallis as governor general with the unlimited powers of a dictator after this it would be a distinct confession of weakness on the part of the ministry if they avoided the question while if they succeeded in solving it to the satisfaction of the country and of their supporters a long period of office seemed assured to them the prospect was an enticing one fox had never yet been appalled by the bigness of a stake nor was he the man to be turned from the path of glory because it was also the path of danger from a dramatic point of view the india bill and the events which succeeded it formed the crisis in fox's life and political career it is his one great effort at constructive statesmanship his one great opportunity not merely of destroying a vicious system, but of constructing a method of government for thirty millions of people which should be just, humane, and workable. It was a problem which demanded the highest gifts of statesmanship, the insight which could look fearlessly and safely into the future, the sympathy which could understand the thoughts and feelings of people different in race, in religion, and in temperament from Englishmen and the wisdom which could combine what was rightly due to them with the just claims of a conquering and dominant nation on the other side of the world. Fox threw himself into his task with characteristic self-surrender. He discarded the notions of political prudence as unworthy of the cause. He refused to compromise and impair the perfection of his scheme by concession to ignorance or prejudice at home he could not bear to think that the welfare of India should be affected by the danger of losing a few corrupt votes at a parliamentary division, and he produced eventually a scheme which posterity has agreed to admire and which contemporaries united to denounce. The principles of Fox's bill are principles which, when carried out in later time, have given to the people of india the only just government which they have ever known they are principles which when enunciated by fox seemed to educated england to be the corrupt offspring of the meanest party spirit to us the constant supervision of parliament however liable in detail to abuse seems the best conceivable check upon ministerial maladministration to the nation in the days of fox parliament meant the chosen field of ministerial influence its supervision was a farce its patronage corruption to increase the powers of the representatives of the people was but a well-sounding phrase for throwing power into the hands of the minister it was the unrepresentative character of parliament which was the real cause of the mischief people must first learn to trust parliament itself before they will trust its nominees they were far more willing to hand over all power to a dictator like cornwallis whose character was their guarantee than entrust a share of it to a house of commons which too often meant a majority nominated by peers and nabobs returned by secret service money and kept together by sinecures and pensions Fox in so many things below the moral standard of his age was in his belief in parliament above it he looked forward to the time when by the passing of the imminent measure of parliamentary reform the house of commons should be emancipated his countrymen looked back to the last election when even george Third was aghast at the money which had been spent the mistake was a fatal one he was sure of the house of commons for the coalition majority was unimpaired the house of lords might be with him for party ties were still strong but if any untoward accident happened and he was forced to the arbitrament of the constituencies his success would mainly depend upon the way in which the question came before the electors and management was fox's weak point On the eighteenth of november fox introduced his scheme it was divided into two parts by the first bill the existing authority of the east india company was superseded by a board of seven commissioners in whom absolute control over the patronage and government of india was vested under them another board of eight assistant councillors was formed to administer and regulate the commercial affairs of the company the seven commissioners were at first to hold office only for four years and to be appointed by Parliament. If the Act proved a success in practice after the expiration of the four years, they were to be appointed by the Crown. The assistant councillors were also in the first instance to be appointed by Parliament, but future vacancies were to be filled up by the Court of Proprietors. The commissioners were to sit in England under the eye of Parliament. All business transacted by them was to be entered in books open to the inspection of Parliament, and all differences of opinion which might arise between them and the Governor-General or other authorities in India, and especially any act of disobedience to orders from home committed by the Indian officials, was to be made the subject of careful minutes on both sides, so that parliament might have before it all the materials necessary for an independent judgment by the second bill which hardly survived its birth minute and harassing restrictions were imposed upon the free action of the governor general both in commerce and in politics which were intended to guard against abuse of power and over ambitious schemes by bringing them rigidly under the control of the home authorities the plan of fox and burke therefore depended upon two great principles one that india was to be governed from england two that the guarantee for its good government was to be found in parliamentary control india was to be brought within the pale of the english constitution responsibility for the well-being of thirty millions of people was too great to be lodged anywhere but in the crown and its responsible advisers the same power that checked the insidious influence of a george the third in england and punished the oppression of a strafford in ireland or the corruption of a trevor even in the speaker's chair was to extend a watchful eye as far as the distant plains of bengal parliament in the eyes of fox like magna carta in the eyes of cook was such a fellow that he will have no sovereign true india was not to follow humbly in the wake of english party politics continuity in administration so desirable for a distant dependency so essential for an eastern community was carefully preserved the commissioners were not to be the sport of party majorities in england and change with every ministry as the secretary for india does now but when parliamentary control was fully established when each vacancy on the board as it occurred was filled up by the crown on the advice of the prime minister of the day english party politics could not fail to make themselves clearly though indirectly felt in the government of india and india could not afford to disregard her common interests in the political problems of england A scheme so broad and so far-seeing almost disarms criticism by its attractiveness. Yet it was clearly a scheme for the future rather than for the present, for the nineteenth century rather than for the eighteenth. It would almost seem as if the vivid and prophetic imagination of Burke already saw the thin dark line of the electric telegraph binding together England and India in quick and close embrace as if his ears already caught the thud of the steam engine amid the deserts of suez not many years before he had denounced the folly of attempting to coerce a nation three thousand miles away he was now attempting to bind down by parliamentary inquiry and legislative restriction the ruler of an empire on the other side of the world restrictive checks such as parliament can impose or exercise Are only useful when they can be promptly enforced they are valuable to prevent they are useless to cure they are often dangerous to punish they must be both useless and dangerous when they can only act a year after the occasion for action has arisen men who have the stuff in them to build up an empire are not the men to be bound down by legislative restrictions or deterred by the fear of parliamentary inquiry In modern days, the conditions are precisely reversed to what they were in 1783. The business of Indian administrators is to defend an empire, not to create it, and the will of Parliament is known at Calcutta almost before it has been declared in London. Yet even in modern days, the wisest statesmen of England have been willing to give a generous confidence to the viceroy whom they have carefully chosen in seventeen eighty three indian affairs were in a state of transition our power in india was but half developed our administration most imperfect our knowledge of the country very limited we had but just escaped by the talents and partly it must be admitted by the unscrupulousness of warren hastings from total ruin grave dangers from mysore from the mahrattas and from the french still threatened our ascendancy. How could these dangers possibly be adequately met by a board of English politicians in London? Mr. Pitt's India Bill was not so comprehensive, not so far-sighted a scheme as that of Fox and Burke, but it possessed the great merits of being suited to the circumstance of the time. It was transitional in its nature, and it dealt with a power in a state of transition corruption and oppression in india were to be suppressed not by the vigilance of an english parliament possibly equally corrupt and unjust but by the high character and unremitting efforts of the great officials sent out to assume the reins of government pitt's india bill was twice modified in the ten years which elapsed from its passing and each time in the direction of placing greater confidence in the governor-general and it was in consequence of such a policy that england obtained the services of lord cornwallis and the marquis wellesley had fox's bill passed into law and by great good fortune cornwallis and wellesley accepted office in spite of it can it be imagined that the restrictions which it contained would have lasted one moment beyond the time when they began to be felt would cornwallis have drawn back from the conquest of mysore or Wellesley from the Treaty of bassain for fear of parliamentary censure or in deference to parliamentary restriction? When the crisis came, all considerations except those of the safety of the empire would have been scattered to the wind, and legislative restrictions, like Samson's bonds, proved efficacious only while the strong man slept. But this was not the reasoning which proved fatal to the bill. It was attacked not from the high ground of the true relations between india and england but from the lower ground of pure party policy in order to put the government of india on right lines for all time fox had deliberately run the risk of wrecking his whole scheme by his too ostentatious disregard of the prejudices of the day never was any great scheme constructed since the days of parliamentary government with so little consideration for the necessities of parliamentary warfare the strange inability to grasp the political responsibilities of the moment and to combine them with statesmanlike schemes for the future which is so astonishing in a practical and powerful debater like fox was never more apparent than in his india bill The coalition on which he relied was partly made up of men returned to parliament by royal influence to support a royal minister. The opposition which he had to dread was inspired by the king himself and headed by men who had taken as their leading political principle the vindication of royal authority and administration. Yet Fox proposed to transfer the whole patronage of India for four years from the company, not to the crown as head of the state, to commissioners appointed by parliament that is by himself and his majority such a provision could not fail to unite the whole tory party the whole of the court party and the whole of those interested not merely in the east india company but in any chartered company whatsoever in the bitterest hostility to the measures it raised grave doubts among those of his own supporters who disliked wholesale interference with old established institutions. Again, the chief difficulty with which Fox had to contend, next to the personal hostility of the king, was the suspicion in the minds of the nation that his coalition with North rested on no principle and was dictated merely by greed of office. The king had diligently let it be known what he thought about the matter. The opposition had not lost an opportunity of pressing their view upon the country during the recess it is noticeable that the attack on the coalition as unprincipled and unnatural became much more virulent after the recess than it was before it one member with more passion than humour fell into the delightful bathos of winding up a furious attack on the ministry by demanding that a starling should be placed in the House to remind members of the state of affairs by constantly repeating, coalition, coalition, cursed coalition. As a matter of parliamentary tactics, it was above all things important to the Ministry that their great measures should not be open to the charge of being corruptly designed to throw power and influence into their own hands under cover of an hypocritical profession of concern for the sufferings of India. Yet Fox, either carelessly or presumptuously, ran his head straight into the trap which lay open before him. To those who were already somewhat doubtful of the honesty of the coalition, the proposal to vest the whole lucrative patronage of India in the hands of the ministry for four years seemed an absolute confirmation of their worst fears. The revolutionary character of the India Bill illustrated the unprincipled character of the coalition men like fox and burke in the cold shade of opposition had declaimed against corruption with an intensity of moral earnestness which had convinced all men of their sincerity yet when other chances of obtaining office seemed to fail they had not scrupled to make terms of alliance with the man who above all others was blackened with the stain of long years of parliamentary corruption and now when they had gained power by these doubtful means they proposed to assume to themselves the whole patronage of india for four years for what purpose had they thus deprived the east india company of its chartered rights for what purpose did they propose to deprive the crown of its natural inheritance what sort of use would fox and north make of the influence thus greedily claimed was it to send out to india men of approved honesty and of high character regardless of political connection and party advantages or was it to use the patronage of india for binding together the party at home for the reward of political service for the satisfying of personal claims for consolidating the power of the ministry such were the thoughts which were stirring in the minds of men when fox made public the names of the first seven commissioners. End of section 11.